we need to break out of that cage because the coolest stuff happens when we get creative, when we have the time to be creative, and when our creativity is not you know, put out, the flame is not extinguished by all the stress that we're having trying to make other things happen. Welcome to Her Drive Podcast, a female-focused interview series with women of the world discussing their road trips to success. I'm your host, Cindy Cramblett, a travel expert, business owner, and curious spirit with a knack for meeting fascinating women. Please join me as I hop in the passenger seat and chat with these ambitious women about what drives them, twists and turns, and those pedal-to-the-metal moments. Let's drive. Hello and welcome back to Her Drive Podcast, everybody. I am really excited about this episode. This is episode number 52, and I have had the honor to talk to so many amazing women that I've either come across in my travels or have found them somehow in my uh, social media scrolling, stalking. (laughs) Um, And I'm pumped for today's guest. She has... um, a business that is very much in alignment with my love of nature, of free diving, and really just pushing myself to become the best version of me. And a lot of times in my experience, that comes from doing hard ass shit. So, <laughs> um, so without further ado, I would like to introduce you all to Dr. Lindsay Bira, who is the founder of Ocean Oriented. And what this business is all about is creating expeditions, uh, from what I understand in the water and it helps elite leaders and people just really push themselves a little bit further. Um, but I will let Dr. Lindsay explain all of that in more detail. Hello and welcome to her drive. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is an awesome platform to be able to talk about ocean-oriented and everyone's emotional well-being and how we can use nature and exercise to support our well-being on a daily basis or on a wellness trip. I think that is super fantastic. Um, So we have not met in person yet. Um, I found you on social media and I was just so impressed with how you are blending neuroscience with uh, freediving, spearfishing, et cetera. So can you kind of walk me through kind of the genesis of of your, your life story? Like, how did you get into um, medicine of the mind and then find your way into freediving and then grow into what you're doing with ocean oriented? Yes, this is a great question. And, you know, it reminds me of something that, you know, I've had to think a lot about in my own life, which is kind of the concept of innovation, which is two seemingly opposing concepts coming together and creating something new and kind of changing the landscape. And so this ocean oriented and, you know, me being a psychologist and then also a a spearfisher, free diver and teaching people to do that, you know, there's some opposition there, but they're actually very aligned. And when they come together, there's so much power. So to kind of rewind, so I am a clinical health psychologist, which essentially means a medical psychologist. So most of my training has been in hospitals with different patient populations, as well as with depression, anxiety, panic disorder, PTSD. I have a specialization in PTSD. I was with the military for a long time. And then after residency fellowship, transitioned to assistant professor of psychiatry at University of Texas Health, which is the medical school, where I still am there on faculty as an adjunct. And since then, I have started my own business. And so what my own business has been historically has been the private practice, which has absolutely been amazing, using all the tools to work with people one-on-one, and then also speaking about emotional well-being and what I believe is kind of the forefront of human evolution, which is building our emotional well-being in kind of novel and new ways on a daily basis and, and really becoming better humans because of that. So then what happened is I always was a scuba diver. So I always knew how absolutely magical the underwater world was and how much it quieted my own brain. Me being a high performer myself, perfectionistic and having to deal with some of the downsides of that over time 
has meant that, you know, experiences like that have, have been a lot of benefit for me in terms of just being able to quiet everything, hyper-focus, and really refresh myself. But I started to feel that scuba diving was way too cumbersome. Too many tanks. Nobody in my life did it. I was always doing it by myself, which is fine, but still, right? So I kind of left it behind. And when I decided to move back to Miami, so I moved back from Texas to Miami, and Miami is where I got my PhD. So I always had a love for the ocean here and just kind of the nature. And moved back to Miami and was out with a friend and her husband. And we were swimming down and picking up starfish from the bottom. And he said, Hey, Lindsay, you're really good at holding your breath. Here's a spear gun. There's a school of fish down there that's edible. Why don't you dive down and see if you can get it? Right. And I'm pretty competitive with myself. And I'm also from Texas. So, like, I know how to pull a trigger. Never shot a spear gun before, but okay, let's go. So, I dive down deeper than I even thought. I think it was around 40 feet in these really dinky little fins and saw the school of fish pointed at one, honed in, shot the trigger and got it. And we had fresh sashimi within 10 minutes. And my friend, my girlfriend snapped a photo of me coming up. And this kind of brought all of these things together. And I thought this was such an absolutely amazing experience. I need to learn more. This is when I discovered the term free diving. Because when I was trying to go out with people spearfishing, they were asking, have you had free diving training? Because if you haven't, then you are not a safe diver, you know, without a tank. So that's how I learned the term. I did not know, uh, you know, before, you know, two to three years ago, what free diving was. I had never really heard it before. And so that started my own journey in getting free diving training, which launched my absolute amazement around the science and benefit of free diving. And when I began to learn kind of the pillars, the basis of it, and learned that what free diving is, is allowing us to tap into our natural mammalian dive reflex. Every single person listening right now has a mammalian dive reflex ready to be tapped within you. And it gets triggered by our cold receptors, so temperature receptors in our face and our pressure receptors in our lungs. And so this is how the physics of the ocean acts upon our biology. It's just ready to go, which is pretty amazing. But the only way to actually tap in and trust it is through psychology. And I learned that free diving is 90% psychology and mindset and trust in yourself in the process versus, you know, actual physical ability. And so I was on my own journey, really getting better at free diving, getting better at trusting my own body and not responding to my anxiety response. So I could see my progress happening very quickly while I was having these epic experiences in nature with absolutely amazing people and how much it was fueling me for my own world. The other piece that came together that I just found absolutely fascinating was that breath hold practice is what we use in evidence-based treatment, which means research-based treatment for anxiety and panic. So since early days in graduate school, when I had a patient who was having significant anxiety, even mild anxiety and or panic attacks, one thing that we do is we do, we do what's called interoceptive exposures. Let me break that down really quickly. Interoceptive basically means entero, inside. Septive is how we perceive. And an exposure in psychology land is some type of action that we take to expose ourselves to some type of discomfort, uncertainty, and distress. And we do that repeatedly so that our brain, our nervous system learns to not respond to those cues as if those cues mean danger because they actually don't. So we actually learned that those things don't mean danger, and that's how we cure and solve anxiety and panic. It works really well. And one of those interoceptive exposures, there's a bunch of them that you walk patients through step by step, but one of the most important ones is the breath hold exposure. And you get a patient, and I always do it with my patients at the same time. We hold our breath to 60 seconds. Sometimes people can get there, sometimes they can't. We have to start at 30 and slowly work up. 
But eventually what happens is you learn that you are totally capable of holding your breath for 60 seconds. And those uncomfortable sensations that you get mean absolutely nothing. So anxiety completely goes away, trust builds, and now your brain has rerouted literally from a neurobiological perspective, a new pathway that just doesn't bring anxiety anymore. And so as I was learning free diving and realizing that the only way to be good at free diving was to tolerate those sensations of the breath hold and not interpret them as dangerous, but interpret them as simply a part of the process and maintain trust in my own body's ability, that's how I got better. And so there was a direct relationship between what I was doing as a, as a psychologist with patients with anxiety, panic, PTSD, et cetera. And then what I was experiencing in freediving that was helping my performance, not only with freediving, but also indirectly back into my role as a psychologist, helping me be more balanced. So, you know, it's funny to look back and see how things happen because I got this paper in the mail from Patty. So I did all my certifications in freediving through Patty with freediver Steph in the Bahamas. Look her up at freediver Steph. Absolutely epic quit her corporate job living in uh, the Bahamas on a catamaran. She bought herself. She's a freedive instructor, epic human, solid woman, supporting women. I mean, just amazing. This is also one reason why women don't get into sports. The equipment doesn't fit us. It's usually a guy training us. We're getting left behind. It's uncomfortable. We just decide we don't like it. But it's not that we don't like it. It's that it's the wrong environment with the wrong trainer and the equipment doesn't fit. So it's amazing when you find a right fit of somebody to guide you through something, how any door can be opened. So freediver stuff was that for me and did all my certifications through her, got a pamphlet in the mail from Patty. It said, congrats, you're freediver one, two, three level certified. The next step is to become an instructor. And I literally laughed out loud because I, I thought this has been a separate part of my life. This is my private life, my hobby. And I'm a psychologist in all my other parts of life. Like these things do not go together. Like I would never be an instructor. Like that would be weird, right? I fall asleep that night and I have this dream where they did come together. And I was on a catamaran leading neuroscience-based resiliency retreats as both a psychologist and a freediver instructor. And I from that dream, finding that so odd that two very opposing things that I laughed at came together in my dream and made so much sense. And that essentially was the birth of Ocean Oriented, which is where neuroscience meets ocean adventure using freediving, spearfishing, and ocean adventure as tools, almost like Petri dishes, to watch how our mind reacts and to maximize performance and well-being through a very short-term experience that essentially changes the way that you experience your body, the ocean, and kind of shifts a perspective in life moving forward. And what a beautiful amalgamation of two different worlds coming together and um, creating, I mean, everything that you were talking about as far as uh, the mental and physical aspect of freediving um, I 100% resonate with. I've experienced it myself in the many places I've gone uh, free diving and spearing. And I've had friends say to me who in the past, like, you know, you have to be careful who you invite to do these sports if they're not doing any type of training because uh, they may not have the mental aptitude and they might freak out in the water. It could be really bad. And I never really, uh, I never truly understood why that would happen because I just naturally took to it. It feels very meditative being mm -hmm. under the water and I have a, a busy mind. I'm goal oriented. And when in the water, uh, all of my thoughts of everything else goes away and I just feel completely present. And it was one of the first times in my life, and this was maybe almost 10 years ago when I discovered freediving that I felt at peace and totally serene outside of meditation or prayer. And um, so hearing that you've created this beautiful way to marry the two and to be able to explain it from a scientific lens is absolutely amazing. And I'm curious from the time that you had your dream <laughs> to uh, when was the, the time period that it took you to actually fully form and start taking people out on the water? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think it was summer 2021 that I had the dream, probably July. And then I'm a very action-oriented person. So if I have an idea, I, I pretty much go for it. And so I just said, well, you know, why not? Why not just get started on this? So I just pulled the trigger on doing a private course to be an instructor, which was extremely difficult. I almost quit several times, which came back to the mindset of I'm a psychologist, not a free diver. Like, what am I, what am I trying to do here? Right. I must be a crazy person. And, um, you know, my community kept me moving through free diver stuff was my biggest advocate. Wouldn't let me quit. Um, and ended up finishing that. I think I started it in September, finished it in, I was supposed to finish it in January, but it took until April. And so that was April, 2022. So it was quite a long time. Um, had epic experiences, you know, in that time with diving and, you know, it was, it was through the beginning of this year, 2022, that I was really working on the branding because I knew I was going to finish the instructor piece. It was just a matter of time. So I wanted all the branding ready to go. And that was another mission in itself, because again, I'm a psychologist, not a marketer, not a branding specialist, design person. So, you know, I had a little brochure ready to go and had recently made new friends with just this epic graphic designer and, and worldwide marketer. And she basically had an intervention with me and she said, no, you cannot and never use the word brochure again. <laughs> and, <laughs> she kind of took her lens. And of course I paid her for her services and really invested in this. This was a huge investment for, for me financially, time-wise, um, and, you know, somewhat emotionally too, it was essentially, you know, creating a startup company. I didn't realize I was doing that, but that's kind of, kind of what I did. And so, you know, paid for that, wanted to have this extremely top notch. My passion for the vision is really what pushed me through. She helped with the branding and concept. Um, and then I started to market for the first trip. So my goal was to have the first trip in May and that kind of clearly was not going to happen. And especially since the instructor piece got kind of pushed out. So the first trip I was able to launch was actually in June, which was a huge accomplishment. And wow, I mean, the pieces to figure out with that, because we're on a catamaran in the Bahamas. I have a charter plane that charters people out from Fort Lauderdale or Miami to the Bahamas, essentially drops them. And the whole idea is they don't really know where they're going, which I... <laughs> I think is like the first part of the challenge for high performing people. We want to know all the details. And so I have, you know, somebody who picks them up at the airport and basically drops them on this really deserted beach. And then we come in the dinghy and pick them up. And so kind of even figuring out all of those pieces, it was very much a little bit fly by the seat of my pants, right? In a very ethical, responsible way, because I did have everything set and ready to go. I had all the people hired. I had the boat ready to go. Everything was great. But I was figuring out pieces along the way for that first one. And I think that was such an important lesson for me of when we create stuff, we cannot have the plan fully formed. We have the idea and the vision Vision is the biggest piece of resiliency. As long as we have a strong vision, we really get carried through doing anything. So that's important. And so having that vision and just putting one foot in front of the other is what allowed me to launch it the first expedition in June. That's fantastic. I found that having your broad, strong vision, understanding, uh, or maybe embodying what it feels like for that goal to be achieved or the process of achieving it is so powerful that it leads me to not fixate so much on the the hows going exactly out how I have planned, but allowing for various lines of effort to come together, pivots to occur to ultimately lead to a success. And it sounds like that's how you focused on your expeditions and bringing them to light. Yes, which is another skill that we measure in outcomes and research. We call it tolerance of uncertainty. And another skill that we measure as an outcome is cognitive flexibility. So when we look at anything entrepreneurial, really what you're practicing is the tolerance of uncertainty, which feels really overwhelming and kind of crazy at times. But you learn trust with that. 
and you learn to trust the process and that things unfold that you can't possibly imagine, but you can rely on your skills and tapping into networks. And then the other piece, which is the cognitive flexibility, is not having the rigidity of this is how things need to be. And if it's not this, then it's not working. It's being able to think outside the box and creatively pulling pieces together to shift gears and make something happen that might even be more beautiful than what the original plan was. I'm in total agreement. And I can see over time, I keep referencing back to like my life, but I started my own business when I was like, think 24. And I was, I have a background in trip design and planning and organization and tour guiding. And I used to be a very rigid person and would think that I needed to stick to this particular schedule. And this is why I'm da, 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 hit all, hit all the marks specifically how they are designed. But over time, I guess just working in that industry chipped away that rigidity. And I started to embrace the unknown and really kind of enjoy <laughs> the uncertainty of, uh, of life. And I'm curious with your clients who are coming in, are you able to measure certain things from the time that they first find ocean oriented until post the expedition? That's a great question. So me as a clinical scientist, so a clinical psychologist involved in research, research what was very important to me was to measure progress in a way that people could see their growth and then continue to grow and know what to work on even after the trip, right? And so what I use, so since this is not a population, it's not a clinical population. So none of these people who come are my patients. I would call them, you know, my clients, but it's more of like a coaching educational consultant role and, and from an experience-based way rather than kind of the informed consent, you are my one-to-one -one client patient, right? So no disorder-based measures. So no measures of anxiety, depression, trauma, nothing like that but more on the positive psychology spectrum, which I don't even like that term positive because it assumes that we should just be thinking positive and that's just not real life. But that's just kind of like the, the area from which I pulled this measure. And it's a measure of resiliency. So it's actually the PR6 and it measures the six domains of resiliency. And I give that to people once they're signed up, I give that to them before the trip and then one week post, and then three months post trip. And I also design individual growth plans. So in addition to the PR6, people also fill out an intake questionnaire, which really gives me a sense of their background, their current position, what they want to work on, what they struggle with. And so from that and the PR6 and my experience with them in person, then I create an individual growth plan and have one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody as soon as we board the catamaran that first day. And then throughout every experience that we have, I have everybody's growth plan in mind and I'm pulling from it as we're doing different activities. So when seeing somebody is being held back by something, I pull out something that's going to be helpful for them so they can overcome that barrier. And so then by the end of the trip, you know, we're relating it all back to the, the PR6. And at breakfast, at dinner, we do little modules of resiliency training from all those six domains. And so it's a really great way to mix kind of the neuroscience, the education piece about what are actual uh, concepts and behaviors and experiences that relate to resiliency how we have the responsibility to build in that consistently in our life. It's like building a muscle so that that muscle is ready to respond when BS hits the fan, right? So we need to be building that in. So there's an educational piece, but then we're also building up those pieces of resiliency through the activities in such a, you know, it's, it's a perspective shifting way. And the, the reason why I think this is, you know, obviously I'm passionate about it, but to be in the Bahamas on a catamaran when most people have not spent the night on a boat. Some people have never put their face in the water. And pretty much everyone has never swam with sharks. And, you know, the, one of the questions on the last expedition, which was in August, one of the guests said, I have a question. Do you think we'll see any sharks on this trip? And I said, we need to rephrase that. And you need to ask, how many sharks will I be swimming with? 
tonight <laughs> because <laughs> they're everywhere. And even if you're in Miami waiting waist high off the ocean, if you look at the the um, drone footage of Miami Beach, there's sharks pretty consistently going back and forth. They just don't care about people for the most part, right? It's statistically an extremely safe thing to be around sharks because they know what we are. And especially if we're diving into their world, they view us as another apex predator. So they just don't care about us. It's when they get confused, you know, are we a thrashing fish or you know, they're being fed in an area nearby, you know, that's where these accidents happen. But to have these experiences where you go from living your normal life, having these ideas about the world, like everyone believes sharks are dangerous. If I'm in the water with a shark, I'm going to get bit, which is just wild to me that this is a world belief that is just not true at all. Then to go from that and having these experiences under the water, having a totally new relationship with your body and swimming with sharks when you thought there's no way that can never happen. It serves as such a great, not just little Petri dish to really grow yourself, but also a ginormous metaphor of so many layers of a metaphor that directly relate to all areas of life as the trip ends and people move into their life. And it's been really cool hearing the feedback, not just seeing the improvements in the PR6 when people are done with the trip, but also um, hearing from them personally, people who said, yeah, I'll go on this trip. Sounds interesting. And then saying, oh my gosh, this has radically shifted me. And so that's been just so rewarding and, you know, really encourages me to keep building it. I love that because it, it seems like you're just getting immediate responses from people while they're out there on the boat in the water. Mm-hmm. Radical shifts. Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, um, what has been the most challenging moment with your clients? Oh gosh. When one almost got whisked out to sea and, <laughs> and the, you know, I would say the challenging moments are kind of not the, the one-on-one -on -one moments um, because I've just been amazed at what epic groups that we've had come together and, you know, people don't know each other. And so there's all these personalities kind of coming together and mixing in, but the support that I've seen people give each other just so naturally and the growth that happens from having this, you know, really cool experience together, those parts have been easy. I think what has been hardest for me as a leader of this is making sure that I'm doing everything by the book right, that I'm protecting everybody involved. And when something has felt like it's gotten out of control, that's what's like scared me a bit. It's, it's been very rare. But there was one time where we were swimming over to this deserted island from the catamaran. And one of my one of my guests on the trip is a basically five foot CEO female, super petite, right? And the other guest was like a six three um, president of his financial company, you know, male. And so it was the three of us and the others were coming over to the deserted island. And our photographer, who is an epic free diver, Laurent, Laurent Glore, LC Glore on Instagram, look him up. He's the ocean oriented photographer. Just amazing what he does underwater. He let us know before they went spearfishing, there's a big current. And, you know, the captain said, ah, it'll be fine. That's fine. So I trusted the captain. We got into the current and I'm relatively tall. I'm 5'11". You know, this other guy, 6'3". But I felt the current and thought, whoa, that's big. And then swoop, the, the female petite client went off of her feet and was being whisked away. And I thought, you know, in my mind, I thought, okay, I don't want anybody to have a negative experience, obviously. And I'm a psychologist. I'm an empath. So I was totally attached to her experience in that moment. She was actually super chill and cool. But I started to think logistically what happens if she gets swept away. So I was ready to let go of all the gear and basically be swept away with her because two people in the ocean swept away is much better than one, right? And we know what to do. You float on your back. You swim um, parallel perpendicular to the current. Anyway, I know which way it is whenever I'm in the water. And so I knew what to do. So I was like, I'll stick with her, right? Well, thank goodness this other guy was kind of where he was because he was able to like scoot over, reach out and just grab her. So then he had her. But that I think was like the moment that for me, it, it, it was just like, oh my goodness, what happens next? But then we debriefed that. And that's one of the, the greatest experiences of these types of adventures. Probably as you know, you know, doing these nature adventures is, 
the biggest growth happens in moments that are surprising and where you have to respond and then kind of think through and you can debrief it later. And so, you know, when we talked about it later and we talked about what my plan was and where her mind was at and really what would have happened, you know, we, we basically broke down both all of our fear-based mindsets where my mind went. And as a psychologist, I'm very transparent about my experience because I'm a human and we're all here for the human experience. And the human experience is absolutely wild and fascinating and sometimes very painful. And so I think it's, you know, there's great strength in being open about it. And so I was breaking down my mindset too and how strong my fear response was. Like, if this happens, this is bad, very black and white you know, not cognitively flexible at all. And it's just such a great reminder that when our fear system kicks in, it kicks in strong and very inaccurately. The reality is she and I would have floated off to the island that was very nearby. Nothing would have happened. We would have gotten our footing over there and then waved the dinghy down whenever it came back. Like it would have been very easy. But when things catch us off guard, our nervous system reacts and causes us certain types of reactions that probably worsen our situation. And so, yeah, I was overwhelmed, but it ended up being such a cool experience that then provided so many laughs, so much more bonding and a great learning experience to break down. Mm. That's amazing. And again, it just sounds like you found the silver lining in um, a challenging situation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like most times, if we're willing to go through the situation and put ourselves there, we can find this the silver lining. I think, you know, when it comes to like significant trauma and really bad things that happen, we don't want to push the, the silver lining. Nobody should be pushed to find that. that. That silver lining needs to come on its own, on its own time. But with these expeditions, this is a very, you know, safe Petri dish, you know, from from the extent that all these factors are vetted, you know, we're not out in the complete open ocean, you know, super, super deep, you know, where places where it's very shallow, you know, so there's there's a level of safety that is there that allow these experiences for us to quickly kind of break down and step into the growth and learning. And I'm always very clear about that with my guests too, is, you know, these are experiences that provide metaphors for the rest of life, but we need to honor the difficulty that the spectrum of life brings and try not to force too quickly something like that, a learning experience or a silver lining, because it just might take time, or we might need to put ourselves in different situations to make sure we're able to arrive to that at some point. That's fascinating. And is there a qualifying process for people who want to come on one of your ex expeditions? Have you ever said no to someone? Yeah, no, I haven't said no yet. It more, it's been a kind of a marketing issue of figuring out how to get the word out there. And so for the first two expeditions that worked really well, just kind of putting out there on Instagram, kind of tapping into my communities. And I found people, some of who I knew on you know some level and some of whom I did not know at all. Um, but the great thing about an expedition like this is it's very small, it's very curated. And so it starts with um, kind of a questionnaire that somebody fills out. And kind of the main thing is openness to experience and a basic ability to swim. <laughs> That's it. Those are the criteria. And then after that, somebody schedules a call with me. And, you know, being a psychologist, when I meet with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, I can kind of evaluate if, you know, this is going to be a good fit for the group dynamic and, you know, if all factors kind of align in that way and, you know, so far everybody has just been great, even the people who are interested in future expeditions, um, it's been really good. I think, I think the things, of course, somebody has to swim. So if they can't swim, it's just going to be a no-go unless this is a couple's trip and one person doesn't want to do the free diving. They just want to kind of be there and experience. We have a Michelin star chef. We have, you know, the spearfishing experience they can benefit from while not doing it. So there's many options, but basic ability to swim is good. And then, you know, the ability to kind of roll with things and just being open to experiences. Um, somebody who's very clinically severe is somebody who I probably would not bring on. So if I detect severe depression, that's, you know, really getting in the way of somebody's functioning in some major ways, 
that might be something that I say, okay, we need to do a little bit of one-on-one work with somebody else. It wouldn't be me, but with another therapist, do some one-on-one work and let's make sure you're ready. That said though, I think that this could be, you know, a really great experience for somebody who just feels stuck in their life. And, you know, I know you mentioned how important kind of adventure travel has been for you. And, you know, I can think back of my life and one of my worst periods um, after a breakup and, you know, discovering somebody had been cheating on me and just really kind of messed with my emotional well-being, my trust in myself and my trust in the world. I was at a very low point and me going and traveling on my own was what brought me back and really prevented long-term struggles with that. So I think it kind of just depends, but I'm really able to connect with people to make sure that it fits with them and fits with the situation. That makes total sense. And it probably goes without saying that people that are drawn to what you're offering are uh, a certain type in a way where it it probably, there's probably not as much weeding out as um, other trips or experiences. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I think so. Well, beautiful. Well, I've I've really enjoyed hearing about ocean oriented, and I would love to kind of turn the the spotlight more onto you and how you've kind of developed into this pretty awesome woman. Like, what's your um? Are you crediting like your action oriented towards how you were raised, or was there a key point in your life that that maneuvered you in this direction? Like, how? How are you this person, (laughs) if that makes sense? (laughs) I appreciate that, first of all. And that's such an interesting question to kind of think about. And, you know, I think just being in this world, like as a small person, I remember just thinking, okay, I have very limited chances to make things happen. You know, I had this concept of time. I remember being like two and a half and just thinking about it. And so I think there's some piece, probably just genetically, that I I had this mindset of putting myself in situations to create unique things or pushing myself educationally, um, you know, in strong ways. But then I also, you know, I had two parents who, of course, nobody has a perfect upbringing, um, but they really encouraged me to reach far and follow what my passions were. And I, I even think back to graduate school, which was extremely hard on many levels and some of the struggles I had and pieces of advice that my dad would give me, which was you can do anything for a limited amount of time and that you don't have to be the smartest one there. You just have to be the most consistent and try the hardest. And, you know, those kinds of things really stuck with me in some low moments. And I, I often think, you know, if I wouldn't have had that type of direction and support, it would have been tremendously more difficult. Um, I also sought out mentors at every stage of my education, career, training. I would reach out. I would feel the lack of support, either emotionally or you know, someplace that I wanted to go, but I had no idea how. And I would literally reach out to people or form relationships um, with professors or there was a psychologist I reached out to who was just in California. I just found her on Twitter and thought she was cool. So I reached out to her and said, "Uh, will you be my mentor? Which I felt a little silly about, but she said yes. And, you know, just a couple of meetings with her was so helpful to make me feel like there was a path and a vision, which is, again, like we talked about, one of the biggest predictors of resiliency is a vision. And another big predictor is having social support. So I think, you know, parents are key, especially when we're younger. But what we need to be talking about more is that there are mentors anywhere you have to find them. And so when I really look back, the only reason why I'm here is because I had some key people and created key people that helped me lay that path and move along the path. Mm. I think that community is so extremely important. And the fact that you were able to recognize that you weren't feeling the support and you sought it is very brave. And I think for the people who are reached out to uh, for advice or mentor, to be a mentor, it must feel uh, a bit re- um, rewarding and that they are doing something right, that someone would want to look up to them and to, and yeah. to learn from them. Mm-hmm. 
definitely the two-way relationship. And we have to remember that too. When we reach out for help, there's a benefit that the other person gets from providing that help. Even if it's dropping off, you know, soup, if you're sick or, you know, something bigger and long-term like a mentorship or professional relationship that really kind of helps develop you, that it is a two-way street. And I always encourage everyone, you know, to reach out to me as well. And I love it when a random student reaches out and says, you know, could I meet with you and talk about this path? Because I really wouldn't be here without that support. It's very important. Absolutely. I think it was like Huberman Lab a yes. while ago started talking about gratitude. And we actually get more of a boost from um, people being grateful to us rather than us being grateful to, for other people or things yeah. or abundance, you name it, which was a powerful twist for me to 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 think about. And um, since listening to that podcast, I'm like, okay, that actually makes sense. Because in the moments where I feel the best, it truly is when I've done something either big or small, not for the reward, but just because I care. Um, and it's just this sincere sense of gratitude. So um, I, that all makes perfect sense. And the symbiotic relationship is, is more than ideal. And we need a bit more of community in our, in our lives, I'd say. Definitely. And especially if anybody's pushing the edge of something, you know, kind of like I started with that concept of innovation, which is two opposing concepts coming together to create something new and useful that changes the world or the landscape. I mean, that's a scary place to be. If you're standing on the edge of starting your own business or, you know, creating an idea um, that people haven't done before, I think that that is such an important space for that mentorship and, um, you know, even that sense of gratitude, you know, why do we create what we create? Well, we want to provide something or give something to the world that did not exist before. And I think that, you know, from either my private practice speaking or ocean oriented, that's always been my platform is, you know, I want to push the edges of knowledge and provide, you know, support and help to other people. And that makes me feel good in you know, some important ways. Um, beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I only have a few more questions for you, but I love this one. And it's, um, about like, what do you do yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, sporadically to, uh, keep yourself centered? Do you have any rituals or practices that, uh, serve you that you think might benefit others to enact? Yes. Yes. This is self-care. So, this has been <laughs> yes. an interesting journey for myself because self-care, I think historically we kind of think about it almost like reactionary, like we you know, have a stressful week and we just need the weekend and to rest on the weekend, that's self-care, or I need a massage and that's self-care. And to some extent, yes, those things are helpful, but what more helpful self-care is, is the consistent science-based things that we put into our life that will absolutely lead to long-term resiliency and benefit. And so what what have been the two most important things for me, but have also been probably, you know, some of the biggest struggles is uh, exercise and then keeping my house clean and in order in a way that makes me feel good. And so the only way that I'm able to stay on top of those things is to outsource to the professional and also set timers for myself. So I've kind of figured this out, but but what keeps me balanced is hiring a housekeeper who comes every week and just really helps out with things. And that allows me to focus on my creative initiatives. Um, and then also working with a personal trainer that keeps me accountable for going to the gym and pushing myself because I, I just would not push myself in the way that he pushes me. There's no way. And, you know, for me, that's a health thing too. Um, just kind of keeping my bones strong as a woman and kind of having things that run, run in my family that I need to watch out for. And just from a mental health perspective too, it makes me feel better. It makes me at the end of the week know that I've taken care of myself in those ways. Um, from a diet perspective, that's been another thing is like I kind of go back and forth and get some meal services delivered so that I know that I'm eating healthy and I'm not spending a lot of time just cooking for myself um, and then burdened by cleaning the dishes or whatever it is um, that I outsource with that. 
So that's always what I recommend to people, especially busy people, um, especially women. Sometimes we feel this like ethical, moral obligation to do some of these things ourselves, And it's like, you know, why? Just outsource to the professional, right? I also have a therapist that I see weekly. So psychologists and therapists do have therapists themselves. And so I think that's a very important thing. And, and it's important to find one who really challenges you. Every single session with your therapist should feel helpful. You feel It should feel like a mind crack a little bit. Like they should say things that you didn't expect them to say and be very helpful. Um, so that's been extremely important for my own balance and growth and how I relate to my family and my life and my goals that haven't been accomplished and you know all of these things that's kept me balanced. And then I do try to do some meditation and some kind of rituals in my home, um, lighting candles, creating good ambiance. Um, really getting into a kind of a meditative state where I let the dust settle and kind of focus on kind of my my internal drive and who I am. And of course, keeping a very strong, healthy community of friends who are rewarding and uplifting and not draining, I think is crucial. Mm, I love that. I recently finished this book. Um, it was called How to Break Up with Your Friends. <laughs> Ooh, yes. And it, uh, it, it's a, the title, of course, is like great clickbait. Um, but it was really about how to further enrich your friendships like you would focus on a romantic relationship, right? And it helped me realize that I have naturally cultivated uh, a great grouping of friends of all different genders and backgrounds and age groups as well. Um, and it has allowed me to have amazing experiences and to, to grow. And I think so many times we don't think about our friendships being so extremely important for our well-being and being a part of our, our support system. And certainly they're the, at least in my life, like it's the first thing I cancel on if I feel like I have a deadline or something. Um, mm-hmm. so, oh, no, I can't see my friend. But they're, they are our chosen family who want to support us and prop us up the most. Yes, that's so true. And you know, what I what I think happens too often is we have this view that we need to be a good friend or a good partner. And then what happens is we tolerate behavior that we probably shouldn't, or we are drained by people in our life and we don't put boundaries around that, or we don't say, well, if I'm drained and this relationship is not working for me, it's not a two-way street. And I think that that's something that, you know, everybody needs to keep in mind is a relationship should be uplifting. And of course it goes through difficult times, but two people should be working on it in healthy ways, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship. And that there's people who you kind of naturally attract that way and who are easy to share that with. And there's people sometimes that we feel obliged to keep in our life for this concept of being a quote, good friend and the need that we need to do that. And I like the title of that book because it's like, no, we actually don't. And I, you know, it's the reason why the divorce rate is so high is we're with people that we probably shouldn't be. And so it's good to kind of keep that in mind and to cultivate and um, kind of comb through a friend group every once in a while and focus on really building the ones that do feel uplifting. I think that's a big, powerful thing. Wholeheartedly. And this leads me to a question in regards to your expeditions again. Are you permitting folks to come as like pairs or do do people have to just come as like you're an individual so you're exposed to strangers, which leads to bonding and vulnerability in a way? Or do you yeah, do you have any ideas around that? Always. I do want to do a couples trip and it's even open to groups. So whether it's a leadership team or a group of friends who want the experience all together, it's usually about four to six people that, that the, um, each, uh, catamaran holds, but I'm also thinking about collaborating with a hotel and then kind of widening the group to create it a little bit bigger. So there's, there's so much flexibility in that. And so the expeditions that I'm going to be creating next year are going to be mainly 
kind of about who's contacting me and, you know, how can we design this to make it happen and, um, you know, also benefit the people who want to go the most. So I'm going to have planned ones for people to sign up for and then just kind of working with people. I can always schedule one as well. And then there's also kind of mini offshoot experiences. So I have the full expeditions that go to the Bahamas. It's four days and three nights. But then I also have experiences here in Miami. So these are day trips. So if somebody wants the experience kind of on a lighter level for a day in Miami, we can do that. And then I'm also launching the sunrise experience next week um, where we're meeting on the beach at 7.30 a.m., doing a brief meditation, kind of dripping in the neuroscience. And then it's kind of a bring your own mask based. <laughs> then So we're getting into the ocean and there's a cool artificial reef right there. And so anybody who wants to then transition to that part of the experience can also have a little bit of underwater experience and just kind of test the bounds that way. So I'm creating these different initiatives, collaborating with some cool artists and some hotels. And so I'm excited about this next round because I think it's going to just branch out, not just the expeditions, but more things that are accessible. And I really look forward to, you know, meeting people who are interested. Mm, and I am so excited for you. It's going to be amazing. I look forward to watching the growth that occurs and hopefully getting to come on one of your expeditions next time yes. in Miami. <laughs> for sure. This is up my alley. Um, and this is my favorite question to ask every single guest and just people I randomly meet. But if you could go back in time and give a younger you some words of advice, what age would you be and what would you say? Oh, gosh, I think I would go back to probably like 15 and I would tell myself to trust what I like and what I don't like more. So just trust myself more and not spend so much time on the dating piece and trying to make that happen. And being caught in the social idea that the biggest value we can have is pairing with somebody and doing the traditional thing. Because when that happens, it happens pretty easily for people. And when it doesn't happen, we spend a lot of unnecessary energy on it. And I feel like that I've done that through my life and I've not trusted myself in some ways. So I think the trust piece relates to kind of business initiatives and really our passion and what makes us tick. And then just these mindsets that we get in traditionally, we need to break out of that cage because the coolest stuff happens when we get creative, when we have the time to be creative and when our creativity is not, you know, put out, the flame is not extinguished by all the stress that we're having, trying to make other things happen. Oof. Wow. I've never heard that answer before. Yeah. And it, great one. It, and it's so true. Yeah. I, that's all I can say about it. Like, I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, thank you, Dr. Lindsay Biera. It's been amazing to chat with you about your story and Ocean Oriented. Is there anything else you'd like to share with uh, the audience before we go? Um, no, I think that's it. I think everybody just, you know, trust yourself. Same advice I would give to myself, trust yourself. And, you know, it's okay if traditional things aren't happening or life isn't looking the way that you thought it was. Um, create something cool within that that is very unique and inspires you. I think it's the biggest thing. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This conversation has been very inspirational to me. I go to Cabo a lot. So now I'm like, I need to get back into diving down there. Yes. Um, <laughs> so thank you for um, kicking me forward because it's a passion that I have tabled for snowboarding and mountaineering <laughs> that I want to get back into. But thank you so much for sharing. For all the guests, thanks for listening. You can find uh, more at oceanoriented.com. I'll put details in the show notes. Um, Dr. Lindsay, it's been a blast and I look forward to watching you grow. Thank you so much for having me and hosting this podcast. Thanks for listening to Her Drive with Cindy Cramblatt. If you want to know more about today's guest or know a fascinating woman you'd love for me to interview, please see the show notes, visit Instagram or her-drive.com. And please, 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 if you love the show, leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for riding along and subscribe to join our next woman and her drive to success.